This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. And online at SBNationLive.com. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Okay, Ron, yes. this month is killing me. I know you had one, possibly two playoff hockey games last weekend, but I'll admit it, I missed the ESPN crawl, so if you can't what? tell us... What Jeez. happened? Yeah, I missed it. Tell us God. what happened. Go to the Guinness Shell Network. We rolled. We rolled. You won. We, well, yes, we won the division title by beating a tough Maine team, 3-1. to one. Dominated play most of the day. And then we went into the uh, uh, Valley League Championship game against Marblehead, which had a pretty good uh, team, and we beat them 4-3 to three in overtime. We uh, we were down 3-2 to two with 2.28 to go, tied it up, and then uh, beat them in a 3-on-3 three three in overtime with a minute 48 oh, wow. to go. Caught them on a bad change. Call to play, up up we came, one on one with the goalie. Oh, congratulations! Hey, uh, what's next for you guys? You going on the banquet circuit? <laughs> Maybe so. I tell you one thing: they gave they gave us a trophy as high as my hip, literally as high as my hip. <laughs> I think it's huge. We You're going to carry that with you to different towns around the state, like the Stanley <laughs> Cup. You know, have yeah, to take a bath in it and everything. Right. <laughs> Each one of my kids gets it for a week. He can take it where he wants. So I like it. Hey, Gooseman, I know you played hockey. Um, any championships, awards, whatever you want to mention? And oh, and how come Ron didn't ask you for your advice during those playoffs? <laughs> well. My senior in high school, he won the division title and led the league in goals. But apparently offense wasn't Ron's problem, so he never called. Exactly right. <laughs> well, too bad. Sunky did okay without it. Well, our advice to everyone out there is to stick around for today's show. We have former Patriots tight end Ben Coates here to weigh in on the retirement of Rob Gronkowski. The NFL's former head of officiating, that would be Dean Blandino, Dean Blandino, here to talk about the latest replay change. And, of course, Hall of Fame voter Peter King of NBC Sports to catch up on everything this offseason on and off the field. Gooseman, biggest offseason story. The Browns, Robert Kraft, or Ron's Grizzlies? Well, in deference to the Browns, Kraft, and Ron, it's Michigan State toppling Mighty Duke last week. Advanced to get another Final Four. Tom Izzo was the only guy to outcoach Ron last weekend. <laughs> How's that guy well, keep his job yelling at the players all the time? That's just not Ron, very nice. Congratulations. I thought you outcoached Tom Izzo, Ron. Uh, hey, I've got one more question for you, by the way. Speaking of Tom Izzo and basketball, have you got a lifetime contract like John Calipari at uh, K- Kentucky? And if not, why not? Well, I don't have that, but I just got a promotion. That now I'm coaching the Bantams next year, so bigger boys uh, hitting, oh. real hitting right up my alley. It'd be pretty I good. Like it. well, we may not win any games, but we'll win the bloodbath. <laughs> You know what, maybe you should give them an April 15th deadline, like Russell Wilson. <laughs> well, hey, we've got a deadline, and it's for the next break. So you know what, we're going to it. This is the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, uh, you don't have a lifetime contract, Ron, but, you know, I was talking to Goose, and he said something about having a lifetime contact with us. Not sure what that means, but take for what it's worth. Hey, uh, I'm sure you saw this, but I wanted to mention it anyway. Um, that was the passing of running back Joe Bellino, who won the 1960 Heisman Trophy and died last Thursday at the age of 81. Now... I remember Joe when I was growing up because we lived in Norfolk, Virginia. Um, the Naval Academy came there to play a game, and I wrote to him and got back a black-and-white photo that I still have. Um, and I'll be honest, he was one of my favorite running backs then, along with Jaguar John Arnett, Lenny Moore, and Tom Maddy. Yeah, I was a 
Baltimore Colts fan. Um, and this is a guy, it seems to me, who really never had a chance in the NFL because he had to spend his first four years out of Annapolis in the military before he could become NFL eligible. Yeah, but he did spend three season return kicks for Ron's Patriots in the AFL. Even averaged 23 yards a kickoff return one season. Not bad. But what a terrific college player. Yeah, yeah he, he was, was good. He was a great college player. You know, he was a suburban uh, Boston guy from Winchester. Uh, was mm-hmm. a legend, uh, you know, from the time I was a little kid. He was a big three-sport three superstar in high school. You know, state championship, basketball, football, baseball. And then, you know, after he won the Heisman, the Patriots took him on the 19th round because everybody knew he was going away to the Navy. So he's still yeah. the lowest drafted Heisman winner in history. Uh, but when he came back to the Patriots in 1965, uh, you know, I was a young kid, Patriot fan. I couldn't wait. I thought, this is going to be the greatest Joe Bellino. And unfortunately, he ran like Joe Blow because all those years floating around or whatever he was doing in the Navy uh, took away his edge, I think. But he was, you know, like Goose pointed out, you know, he was a good kick returner and, and uh, uh, able player and then went on to uh, have a successful sort of post-football career. Did you ever meet him, Ron? I did, yeah. He's a terrific guy. Very humble guy, as you might imagine. Yeah. Well, and Belichick loves guy. him, you know. Belichick was, that was Belichick's guy when he was at the Naval Academy. And oh, in sure. fact, yeah. when he graduated, uh, Bellino, you know, they all throw their hats in the air, and Belichick tells the story of scrambling around and trying to steal Bellino's hat, which is uh, unclear whether he got it or not. <laughs> <laughs> He's a kid. Maybe two men with hats. We should get that hat. <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. Well, uh, another guy who you mentioned who was uh, a humble guy was Roger Staubach, also went to the Naval Academy and also went the same route. Uh, he served in the Navy before playing pro ball. I think he was over in Vietnam. In fact, I know he was. Um, and, and Goose, I mean, he made it to the Hall of Fame, and, and, and he was a great, great quarterback. I guess the question is, why do you think he was able to overcome that layoff so successfully where Joe Bellino could not? Well, because Bellino in his position got hit in every play. A quarterback does not. You know, he, he spends most game where he's not getting hit, especially back then where they weren't throwing the ball 40 times a game. So he didn't have the contact with the body that Bellino did. Well, it's always, always sad to hear the passing of these guys, and Joe Bellino was a better, better player than most people know. Except, you know what? Now you know. At least you should know. And now we're going to know what's on our doctor's data mind. That's our Rick Osland and Goose. Pretty sure you're not talking about the Grizzlies' upset win this week. So, what do you have? You should be. <laughs> well, will Heisman, will Heisman Trophy winner Kylan Murray become the 24th quarterback to go first overall since the merger of the AFL and NFL draft in 1967? The Arizona Cardinals had the first overall selection in this draft, and Ron's Raiders are among a small handful of teams sniffing around about possibly moving up for that pick. Is Murray, who has a slight build but a big arm, worthy of that pick? History says quarterbacks who go first overall become good quarterbacks in the NFL, but not necessarily great ones. Of those 23 quarterbacks to go first overall, 16 of them went on to become Pro Bowl performers. 14 took their teams to conference title games, and 10 took their teams to Super Bowls. But only 6 of the 23 won Super Bowls, and only 4 were voted NFL MVP. Terry Bradshaw, John Elway, Peyton Manning, and Cam Newton. Only three now have busts in the Hall of Fame. Bradshaw, Elway, and Aikman. And Manning likely will join them in Canton soon, though. 14 of the 23 have retired. Now the good news. The average career for those 14 first overall picks lasted 13 seasons and 148 career starts. There have been busts, but those busts have been rare. Jamarcus Russell was the biggest miss. He went the first overall to the Raiders in 2007, but lasted only three seasons 
in 25 starts. Tim Couch went first overall to the Cleveland Browns in 1999, but lasted only five seasons and 59 starts. But the hits certainly outweigh the misses. Vinny Testaverde played 21 seasons. Peyton Manning, 17. John Elway and Jim Plunkett, 16 apiece. Manning went to 14 Pro Bowls. Elway went to 9. Bradshaw won four Super Bowls, and Elway, Manning, and Plunkett, two apiece. Manning won five MVP awards. Of the nine first overall selections still active, seven have been to a combined 18 Pro Bowls. Three have taken their teams to Super Bowls, and one wears a championship ring. Eli Manning, who has two of them. One has been voted NFL MVP, Cam Newton. One won an NFL passing title, Alex Smith. And one has authored a 5,000-yard passing season, Matthew Stafford. Now, Baker Mayfield was considered a risk when he went first overall in 2018 because at 6'1", 215 pounds, he lacked the prototypical size the NFL wants in a quarterback, that being 6'4", 230. But he flashed enough potential in his rookie seasons that Pro Bowls, passing titles, and potentially even Super Bowls could be in his future. Turns out he was not a risk, and Murray won't be a risk either. History says quarterbacks with the first overall pick are generally pretty safe investments. So, okay, Goose, history says uh, Kyler Murray should become a better-than-average quarterback, it sounds like, based on your uh, data analysis. Um, but he's not necessarily going to be a legendary one. So what's your bet? Legend? My bet or my bet is he'll play 13 seasons, start 148 games, and go to a Pro Bowl or two. That's how this group averages out. Who knows how more it will turn out? Dr. Who Data knows. You know. Who knew, who knew how Baker Mayfield would turn out? You know, we all thought John L. would be great. He was. We all thought Troy Aikman would be great. He was. We all thought Peyton Manning would be great. He was. But we also thought Vinny Testaverde could be special. We thought Michael Vick could be special. We thought Tim Couch could be special. We thought Matthew Stafford could be special. Hey, if the NFL was smart about drafting quarterbacks, Drew Brees wouldn't have lasted until the second round. Joe Montana wouldn't have lasted until the third. And Tom Brady certainly wouldn't have lasted until the sixth round. And that's the point. You don't know in April. No one knows. What you're drafting with the first overall pick is hope. There's one thing I knew. I knew a guy named after a piece of furniture was not going to be a great quarterback. (laughs) (laughs) I got two questions for you, Goose. Okay. Apparently, Kyler Murray had dinner in Dallas recently at Al Burnett's, and it was with Oakland coach John Gruden and GM Mike Mayock. (laughs) Were you invited? And if not... Why not? <laughs> Should have. I was not there because I would have been the tallest guy at the table. <laughs> there you go. We would have been the only okay. one to do anything about him, too. <laughs> okay, on to the second question. And none of these number one picks that you talked about measured five feet nine and weighed little more than a, I don't know, a case of king size Heineken's. Uh, how much of a factor should size be? And I'm talking about a guy who's undersized. And secondly, um, wouldn't you be nervous about a guy who's five feet nine and whatever, uh, not weighed much? Well, until Michael Vick, none had ever stood six foot. Until Baker Mayfield, none had ever stood six one. You just need to figure out if you're drafting a player who can be an exception. Here's a guy with a cannon for an arm with four three speed. If you like Vick coming out, you have to like Murray. It's a similar package. And Vic became an NFL runner up, MVP runner up one season. Now there isn't a Carson Wentz who you're projecting from a small school. This is a player who produced on college's biggest stage. In his final college game, he passed for 300 yards and rushed for another 100 against Alabama, against many of the same defensive players he'll see one day in the NFL. Now, historically, the draft is both measurables, particularly in the first round. And if you're drafting off measurables, you're not going to like Kyler Murray. 
But you're drafting off tape, you'll love them. And the best scouts draft off tape. Well, they love Johnny Manziel, although he wasn't a number one overall pick. But it's it, why do you think these guys who were busts, uh, is there sort of different reasons that each one of those guys who were totally uh, in the bust category went that way, Goose, or was it all kind of the same story? Well, I mean, you're, you're talking the bus category is Jamarcus Russell and Tim Couch. And in and, and Couch's case, he went to a first-year expansion team. They didn't want to play him his first year. They wanted to have him sit um, that first season behind Ty Detmer and start the second year. Well, they got shelled the first game against Pittsburgh. He started the second game, and his confidence was beaten up, as was his body that first year. And he never recovered. And too often, the first overall pick goes to a terrible team. And uh, Troy Aikman was able to survive it. And a couple of these guys weren't. Hey, Goose, bottom line, if you were Arizona, would you take him first? I wouldn't. I got Josh Rosen. Okay. Thanks, Goose. Up next, we're going to hear from Hall of Fame voter Peter King, so stay where you are. This is the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, we promised you Peter King of NBC Sports, and you know what? He's here with us now. Peter, of course, is a Hall of Fame voter, any familiar face and voice everywhere, TV, radio, the web, you name it. And Peter, I know you were a familiar face almost everywhere last week in Phoenix at the owners' meeting, so... Let's get to first things first. We're going to check in later in this show with Dean Blandino on the subject, but I want to ask you about it, and that's the revised replay rule that allows coaches to challenge pass interference calls, like essentially the, the Sean Payton rule. My understanding is you see that as a big deal, but not necessarily because of the rule itself, but because of how it was put together and passed, correct? Well, I think it's a big deal, Clark. I think, you know, if I were, all things considered, I think it's better that the rule was put on the books than if it wasn't put on the books. However, and this is a big however, there are tremendous issues with this, Um, as I think you guys probably know. And the issues are essentially that, you know, there's a lot of unintended consequences that could happen with this that we don't see yet. And I've talked to, I've talked to current officials and former officials and coaches about this, and I believe that there is some legitimate concern about, and, I, and I'll bring up the play in the Super Bowl that the competition committee basically said was, uh, you know, should have been overturned. And that is the, um, you know, the, the, the pass with four minutes and 24 seconds left down the right side of the field from Jared Goff to Brandon Cooks that essentially there was no interference call on Stephon Gilmore. And I watched that last weekend 20 or 25 times. And it would be very, very hard for me to overturn the no interference call. And both Rich McKay and Sean Payton said, yes, it should have been called interference. And, and, and the reason that I would have a hard time calling interference on that is that, yes, 
Stephon Gilmore grabbed the left arm of Brandon Cooks as the pass was coming down. But when the pass was in range of being caught by Brandon Cooks, he had both hands free to be able to make the catch, and he didn't make the catch. And so if that play was called interference, I could not have overturned it. If the play, because the play wasn't called interference, I think it would be very hard for me to put interference on that call because Brandon Cooks essentially had the ability to catch the ball when the ball was coming close to his body. So, so again, if you're going to call every one of these plays by the absolute letter of the law, I think I'm not sure that those are the intended consequences that the NFL or the officiating department wants uh, when they passed this rule last week. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more, Peter, because to me you're getting into the same murky area and gray area as you did with the catch-no-catch rule. When you start breaking it down frame by frame, you're dissecting a play that was meant for, or a, 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 I guess a process was meant for, clear and obvious calls. And that wasn't a clear and obvious call. The, the, the play in the Saints-Rams game was, but this thing wasn't. And I will ask you one more question on that Saints-Rams game. Had the Saints won that game? Do you think this would be in effect now? Probably not. (laughs) But I do think that that call basically illustrated, there's a lot of things with that call illustrated something that was really wrong with football. Okay? And what I mean is that, you know, when when you look at this call, When you look at this call, I think that the hardest thing about it was that uh, it really was obvious that that should have been one of two calls, interference and lowering your helmet to make contact. And, And so it was an obvious call that should have been made. And, and, and Clark, I, I understand exactly what you're saying, but one of the things that I think that the NFL sometimes does is they look at the results of a game and the results of a call and they say essentially, okay, we have to change the rule because of, uh, you know, the call plus the result of the game. You make a very good point. Would the Rams have gone back or would the Saints have gone as bat crap over this call? if they had advanced to the Super Bowl and won the Super Bowl. I'm not sure they would have, but in my opinion, there has to be a mechanism in place somehow, some way, for correcting a call like that that was so incredibly wrong and potentially damaging to the credibility of the game. Well, Peter, uh, a little later in the show, we're going to have a blast from the past on, as we often do. We're going to have Ben Coates on. Gronk before Gronk, uh, and you know we've heard all this talk since Gronk decided to retire, first ballot Hall of Famer. Everybody's a first ballot Hall of Famer. Uh, but I'm wondering what your take is uh, on those two guys. I mean, Ben Coates, when he retired, had the fourth most catches of any tight end in history. The other three guys were in the Hall of Fame. Uh, as Ben says, he's in North Carolina. Uh, why have people forgotten him? And what's your take on those two guys? Because they were a lot alike. 
I mean, I think Ben Coates is a very good player. Um, I, you know what, Ron? I have a hard time when we start talking about statistics of modern football players. Right. I just do. I, I, because the statistics of modern football players are going to be inflated. And in my opinion, I just, look, I'm, I'm talking about watching football. Paul Zimmerman used to say to me, you watch the games, you tell me what you think of so-and-so. You know, and it used to drive him crazy in Hall of Fame meetings when people would spend 15 minutes just going stat after stat after stat. You watch the games. Was he a Hall of Fame player compared to the guys who are in right now? To me, Rob Gronkowski's a Hall of Fame football player. I'm not saying that Ben Coates isn't, but when I was watching Ben Coates, I thought he was a very good football player. I never said to myself, there's a Hall of Famer. And if people um, are in that room are otherwise convinced, I'll listen to the argument. But when I watched Rob Gronkowski, I thought he was the best combination of receiver and blocker of any tight end I've seen in the game since Bavaro. And because Bavaro didn't last a long time, and, and even though, look, I mean, is nine years enough at a very high level to be a slam dunk Hall of Famer? No. So if somebody says, hey, look, I think Gronk doesn't pass, um, y- you know, the longevity test, that's, that's your opinion. It's fine. My opinion, he's done enough to be a Hall of Fame football player. I would vote for him. Um, and as far as the whole first ballot thing, I am totally bemused by this. <laughs> Me okay? too. Because, because I look at the Hall of Fame and I just say, how can I tell you whether some guy is a first ballot Hall of Famer until I know who he's up against? There are years we sit in that room where there's 15 modern era candidates up for the hall and and i'm and and i go in there and i say oh my god this is impossible 13 of these guys deserve to be in here and i could give two craps if some guy you know is on the ballot for the first time and doesn't get in it's what i always told chris carter hey chris you're you're deserving of being in the hall of fame and i think you're going to get in the hall of fame one year but don't just think that you're getting in the, the first year because your stats are better than than guy X and y, guy Y and guy Z. It's just, it depends on the year that you're in. And, and I just think we've gotten so caught up in this first ballot Hall of Famer thing that, you know, we've, we've basically put this burden on ourselves and everybody said, oh, my God, you guys are, you're, you're incompetent because you didn't put this guy in on the first ballot. There's a lot of really good players who come up for the Hall of Fame every year. So first ballot, ninth ballot, I don't care. If you're in, you're a Hall of Fame football player. Hey, Ron, tell them what your definition of first ballot Hall of Famer is. Here's my definition of first ballot Hall of Famer, Peter. Jim Brown, sit down. If you had to say one more word about the guy, he's not a first ballot Hall of Famer. you got to give me yeah. one stat, one this, one that. Yeah, yeah. Jim Brown, Joe Montana, Barry Sanders. Joe Green, I mean, I get it. And it's like somebody said to me, I, I, I've never been a big fan of saying that, oh, this guy's a lock for the Hall of Fame. I just, 
because I just don't know. I don't, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know who he's going to be up against. And you can only put five in every year. So you just, you, you've just got to try to do the best job you can every year to put the five most deserving people in the Hall of Fame. Hey, Peter, we got to run, but so great to hear from you. Thanks so much for the time. Really appreciate it, guys. Thank you. Thanks, Peter. You got it. That was Hall of Fame voter Peter King of NBC Sports. Up next, it's former Patriots tight end Ben Coates. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, Ben Coates was Rob Gronkowski before Rob Gronkowski, doing the same things in the same way in the very same uniform, number included, 20 years before Gronk appeared in the NFL. Now, in the 1990s, Ben and Shannon Sharp were the most dominating tight ends in football and were named to the All-Decade team. There were, however, two differences. One, Ben blocked as well as caught passes, and two, Shannon Sharp's Broncos won two Super Bowls that decade, while Ben Coates' Patriots won none, although he did get a ring in his final season with the Indianapolis Colts. Nevertheless, when Ben Coates retired 19 years ago, only three tight ends, yes, three in history had more receptions, and all three are in the Pro Football Hall of Fame, including Shannon Sharp, who's in Canton, while Ben is in retirement in North Carolina. But Ben is here today to talk about his career, Gronk, and what he thinks of the tight end position, and we are delighted. Ben, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, thank you guys for having me, but i got to make a little correction. It was the Baltimore Ravens, not the Indianapolis Ah, Baltimore Ravens. Okay, <laughs> thank right. you. That's yeah. right. That's yeah, the exactly Baltimore right. Ravens. That's right. Hey. Well, you know, well, you know, Ben, in 1993, when I was covering the, uh, the Patriots, Marv Cook was a two-time Pro Bowl tight end, and I remember asking him, what he thought of you after your first two seasons. I think you had a total of 30 catches at that point. And, uh, uh, and this is exactly what he said to me. He said, that kid's going to get me fired. Uh, <laughs> and your first catch that next season was a 54-yard touchdown against uh, the Buffalo Bills. And in, in a sense, you did get uh, Marv fired because you caught 53 passes that, that season and then a record 96 uh, in 1994, of course, when Bledsoe first arrived. When was the moment that you realized – that you could be uh, the best tight end in football? Uh, the moment I got there, just waiting on the right coaching staff and, and getting a connection with a uh, good quarterback like Drew was. You know, we, we, didn't, we had a lot of quarterbacks from 91, 92 that plugged in here and there. And just, you know, having my opportunity to showcase what I can do for its run blocker and receiver. Was it difficult at all to wait? You know, uh, I mean, you would come in as a kind of unknown guy from a small college. You were a fifth-round pick, and no one really expected very much of you, uh, except for the in, you know guys sort of on the uh, inside like Cook. Um, was it, were those first two years difficult for you to sort of kind of have to wait until the situation well, got right? Yeah, yeah, it was difficult coming from you know a small school like I did, and you know I was the All-American, played everything, and did everything, and then you go to a different atmosphere, and then now you have to wait, play special team, which I didn't mind playing special team because being athletic, you know, whatever you want me to do, that's what I'll, I'll try to do to try to help the team win. But, you know, sitting on the side, I'm like, I, I can catch more passes, guys. I need to be in a little bit more. And then, you know, <laughs> 93, everything kind of took off. Bledsoe got there. Parcel got there. Bledsoe got there. And everything just took off like a rocket, you know. So 
I really enjoyed that, you know, we got a guy that was my height as opposed to some of the other guys that's short, couldn't see over the line, you couldn't see him. So, you know, that was the advantage that, that we did have. Ben, like Gronkowski, you were a physical player who never shied away from contact. You were both a dominating blocker as well as a receiver. Does that complete tight end still exist in the NFL today? Well, Grunt was the Grunt was the last uh, uh, complete tight end. Well, Jason just Jason Whitney just came back. Why he come back? I have no idea why he came back. But <laughs> you know, I, I know he coming. coming back to chase that ring to have a chance to try to try to get a Super Bowl ring. But you know, I, I don't think the uh, the uh, complete tight end exists anymore. You know, because now everything went to a pass happy offense. There is no. 1,200 yards, 1,500-yard rusher anymore. Everything is throw first, second, third, fourth down now. So essentially there are more wide receivers today, right, Ben, than, than tight ends? Well, well yeah, there are more uh, XY receivers that they translate and put them in the tight end body, and they line them up in the slot, line them out wide, and you, you rarely see those kids that get drafted first, second round. Okay, go block a straight hand. Go block a Reggie White. You, you, you don't have that anymore. It's like Five on five, five linemen. You got to take these guys. Uh, unless you got a complete tight end, they say, "Hey, you block that defense in by yourself." Yeah. And how many times do you guys see that on a Sunday or a Monday or Thursday? It's not existing anymore. Right. Very rare. I know Goose mentioned Gronk to you. I mean, like Gronk, you went to five Pro Bowls. So who's the best tight end to play in New England? Uh, of course, number eight is seven. Which one you want to pick? <laughs> <laughs> good one. Good one. <laughs> good answer. Of course, I mean, you, you, if you're a ninety guy, you're gonna pick two. If you're after ninety and the Patriots won all these Super Bowl, you're gonna pick Gronk. A lot of people don't understand, don't know when I played because everybody's now with the Patriots because they're winning, 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 winning. Right. It wasn't there when we was losing, 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 and got the franchise from losing to where it is today. So I still take pride in it. I mean, I'm drunk, broke my record and everything. But great player. I mean, put myself, uh, Tom Brady, I mean, we're not Tom, Drew's my guy, but we didn't throw that much. We threw, but we had too many skill guys to just to throw every down. Mm-hmm. Sure, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you had Curtis Martin in the backfield. I mean, they were going to give him the ball. You're right, it was complete. Uh, isn't, he, isn't he in the Hall of Fame? He is in the Hall yeah. of Fame. He is. Yes, he is. So, from Brady's era to now, what running back have they had that's going to go into the Hall of Fame? Yeah. Yeah, no, you're right. Nobody. You're exactly right. right. Nobody at all. You're exactly right. I mean, people. If you ask them who are the running back on those Super Bowl teams, most people can't even remember and tell you who it is. You know? Exactly. I mean, it's it, it, it's a running back by committee. You ask me, it's running back by committee. That's what it is. But you know, a lot of those guys are good receivers. But again, the guys that are coming out now, there are slot receivers playing tight end. None of them really work at trying to get good at just blocking. It's just throwing the ball. Yep. Right. Do you ever think, uh, you know, when you retired, you had the fourth most catches of any tight end in history, and the, the three guys ahead of you are all in the Hall of Fame. Uh, do you ever think about the Hall of Fame anymore and wonder why you've been eligible for 14 years and never been debated? Um, I wonder why. I'm like, well, what is going on? I was a decade tight end. I've been to five trouble, two-time All-Pro. And I'm like, wow, I'm still, is it because I didn't win in New England? I mean, what is it? But at some point after a couple of years, you say, you know, if you go, you go, you don't. 
hey, we know, everybody know who Coach was in the 90s when he retired, fourth all-time, and it's just like you get pushed up on the rug. You, you pick the rug up and you get swept up on the rug for so like 30, 30, 40 years. <laughs> That's what happens. I've been living under that rug for a long time myself, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's how I feel. It's like, okay, let me pick this one up. Okay, let's pick them up on here. We got guys got better stats. <laughs> that's about stats is when you played your era when you played compared to your peers when you played and what kind of uh, stats they had. Because I can look at Dicker, I can look at Mackey. I mean, my stats are better than theirs, but it's the era that they played in and those guys won a Super Bowl in that era where they played. That's, right. that's the only thing I can think of. Yeah, yeah. Uh, how much do you think it is a factor, perhaps, that uh, for many of those years in New England, you know, you were great, but the team struggled? Uh, maybe if you had won that that uh, uh, '96 Super Bowl, uh, maybe the Hall of Fame situation uh, would be different. Do you think that that's a, a, a large part of it, the, the fact that the team itself struggled? I, I really do think that that's a big part of it, considering that you know it's an upstart team and we had guys and. Everybody's talking about longevity, but, you know, you're playing in New England. It's cold. It's frigid. You're getting tackled by three or four guys. You're still dragging them. I mean, it should count for something, but when you go to vote and you just it's just like, oh, he did this. Oh, no, that's not enough. You need to do more. I mean, I'm not a receiver like Shannon Sharp. I'm not going to cut somebody. I'm going to block you. Right. It's a block. Block. <laughs> it's a block. Block for Curtis Martin. Okay. Block for Terry Glenn. Block for whoever it is that's going to get the ball. So it, it, it sometimes it, it, it comes a little overwhelming, but you know, sometimes you know, hey, I played to have fun. The accolades and everything came. That's great. I'm up there with the Winslow, the Newsom, the Sharp, and I'm being number four. That's a great accomplishment for myself and, and everybody that knew me, coming from a small school to being number four all time when I retired. Ben, how would you have fit? in today's NFL, and would you have liked to have played in today's NFL? I would have loved it. I mean, right, I mean, throw the ball, throw the ball. I, right now, if I had nine years, I would take my career, switch it around, give Gronk mine. See, Gronk, only thing different between me and Gronk, Gronk missed how many games, 23 or 26 in nine years? Yeah, he's missed a lot. You're right. He's only played 115 games, yeah. Right. And my, my 10 years, I missed two games. <laughs> So take those twenty some games that would give you another six, uh, another hundred fifty, a hundred and fifty, say hundred fifty, hundred sixty, sixty catches a season, or sixty seventy catches. I give you seven hundred catches right there alone. Sure, wow, easily yeah. two years. Yeah, well, you're you're right on about the longevity because Gronk hasn't played an entire season since 2011, and yet when he announced his retirement, um, you found people saying, first ballot Hall of Famer, and then the greatest tight end of all time, and we've been around to see all these guys. We've, we've seen Mackey, Newsom, you, uh, Ditka, everyone. And I guess I'm going to ask you, you know, about Gronk. Where would you rank him, and has he done enough in your mind to make the Hall of Fame as a first ballot choice? No. Nope. No, I, I always said no. He's not a first ballot. Look, look at the games he missed. Mm-hmm. Every every year for his nine years, look at the games he missed. How much did he play? I mean, he put up the touchdown, but his reception, he's only 20, what, 23 more, 24 more than me? Right. Yeah. He's 24 more than me, but yeah, he has more yards, he has more touchdowns. But 
I mean, he's going to be one of those stigma. But then again, he probably won't because he won three Super Bowls. So, but as far as the best, no, I, I, I can't give him the best. Love him to death. Love the number to death, but I can't give him the best. <laughs> Who would you consider the best? Oh, personally, I, I still say myself. <laughs> <laughs> okay, outside of yourself. <laughs> well, you, you, you have Ozzy still up there. Of course, you have Ozzy up there. You have Shannon up there. And you have Tony. Tony got all the numbers, all everything. But Tony, like I said, Tony never won a Super Bowl. But Tony have all the numbers and the accolades. So, I mean, everything going into society with social media and everything, Facebook, you're going to go with the stats of a person that has the stats that's, that's higher than everybody, everyone else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know she didn't mention Mackey. We we all think Mackey was the best we ever saw. See, that's what I'm saying. See, and you guys there. See, Mackey wasn't in my era. I didn't see Mackey growing up. I saw Winslow. Yeah, and I, I covered Winslow. Yeah, I covered Winslow. Yeah, Winslow was more like a wide receiver, at least, but Mackey was the right. pure tight end. Right. What do you think, so Ben? It, it, everything is going to be debatable in, in different eras. So, sure. I mean, no, no one's wrong, and you're right on about your own opinion. What do you What do you think, Ben? If you were playing today, uh, we talked about it a little bit. But if you were playing today in this sort of no touch defense, where basically they you know they have to let you run free, uh, what would you produce playing today? Could anybody stop? You? Anybody right now, I would say I would probably have receivers number 120, 130 because really, it, to me, when I watch the NFL game now, it looks like it's just 7 on 7. Practice right. 7 on 7. Right. Right. I mean, you can't jam the guys in line. I remember the days when they were in a bear defense, put the defense in outside, put the linebacker head up, had a mic linebacker waiting on me after I beat those two. So <laughs> now you can't, you can't do that now. It's just like, okay, everybody's free release. Get into your route. If you touch them, it's a pass interference. Right. Yeah. I mean, I would love to play in this league right now. <laughs> hey, you ben. probably could play. You probably <laughs> could play today. <laughs> ben, we would love to continue this interview, too. We've got to go. Unfortunately, we're out of time. But thanks so much. Really no appreciate problem. it. Thoroughly no enjoyed it. Yeah, thanks, no Ben. Well, thank you guys thanks, for ben. having me on today. Great catching you up with That was former tight end Ben Coates. Up next, this is a two-minute drill. You'll listen to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, we've almost reached the end of our first half, so let's see if we can have John Perry blow the whistle one last time. That's the two-minute warning. Yeah, thanks, John, and thanks for the memories. That means we're on to the two-minute drill, so Gooseman, let's get started. Let's say Tom Brady was serious about retirement. Who would have been the New England quarterback in 2019? That would be Jack Borges. Nobody was a better passer on the Grizzlies. <laughs> uh, Colin Kaepernick calling. <laughs> the NFL opens its off-season programs this week. Does anyone really care? No. Actually, 32 people care. 32 head coaches. No days off. <laughs> How soon before Baker Mayfield and Odell Beckham have a blow-up on the sideline? That'd be the minute Mayfield realizes serving PB&J is a lot easier than OBJ. <laughs> very clever. I would say the third time he's open and doesn't get the ball because he is a very patient fellow. Speaking of Beckham, he says the goal is to become a legend. So how soon before we start mentioning him in the same sentence with Jerry Rice, Lance Allworth, and Paul Warfield? Uh, that'd be the 12th of never. 
Yeah, when you say we, I think you mean the royal we, and we three will never mention him in that same paragraph, let alone the same sentence. Speaking of the Browns, coach Freddie Kitchen says he's not worried about the high expectations. When's the last time you heard the words Browns and high expectations in the same sentence? When the Browns included Jim Brown. I'll tell you exactly when that was. December 27th, 1964, the morning of the NFL championship game. They had Jim Brown running the ball and Paul Warfield and Gary Collins catching it. Oh, that was a Colts game. Got shut out. Did You got crushed. Yeah. Lastly, on the Browns, their GM, John Darcy, seems to be collecting all of his former Kansas City draft picks. Is there any future in that? Yeah, there is if you want to audition for Law and Order, Criminal Intent. Ooh, ouch. <laughs> ouch. Well, I'd say there wasn't for the Chiefs, so I wouldn't bet on it. And Oliver, Oliver Hardy or Oliver Stone? That'd be Oliver Twist, father of the 1960s dance craze. I would say Oliver Stone because myself, like Bill Belichick, likes to watch film. C.J. Anderson is now a lion. With concern over Todd Gurley's knee, why didn't the Rams re-sign him? Because Sean McVay is a genius. That's what everyone tells me. I must surmise that they found some uh, HGH somewhere in, in St. Louis and said, problem solved. That's the end of the that's the end of our first hour. Coming up, we have Fox Rules analyst Dean Blandino, the all-NFL team of Auburn University, and another Hall of Famer Ron thinks is waiting to happen. So don't go away. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. And online at SBNationLive.com. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Welcome back to hour number two of the Talk of Fame Network. In the next hour, we're going to hear from former officiating chief Dean Blandino, get Ron's latest take on a Hall of Fame nominee, and I think we're going to dissect Rick's list for his Auburn University All-NFL team. That's not All-NBA team. That'd be All-NFL team. But first, first a couple of items we'd like to pass along. Uh, one is that Hall of Fame receiver Michael Irvin got good news after a recent cancer scare with a biopsy for throat cancer coming back, as he said, 100% clean, and that's great to hear. Congratulations, Michael, and continued good luck uh, with your health. The second is a piece of news regarding Rick's favorite NFL exercise, which, of course, is the annual NFL draft. I see the 49ers are marketing their draft day experience by selling two seats, yeah, two in their war room for $22,000, with the proceeds going to a club charity. Now, Gooseman, that leads me to this question. What would you pay to be in the Cowboys' war room? What would I pay, or what would they pay me? Oh, no. Well, I said, what would you pay? I was in their draft room for years with a copy of my top 100 draft board, and it never cost me a penny. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think something our listeners do not know is that Ron actually was in the New England Patriots draft room years ago. Only he didn't pay twenty-two grand, and you know what? They didn't know it either. You want to tell a story, Ron? Sure. It was when they were uh, between stadiums, and they were still in the process of building the new one and tearing down the old one, and most of the old one was torn down, uh, but they had to run the draft out of the old building because uh, they still weren't set up. So, uh, as you can imagine, there are phone lines dangling everywhere, lights hanging out of the ceiling and all that. So I sit down, uh, and I pick up my phone, because we all had phones in those days, no cell phones. I pick up the phone to... Uh, uh, make a call, and I hear a familiar voice. And I say to myself, hmm, that sounds like Bill Belichick talking to another team. And sure enough, it was. So somehow they had crossed the phone line, so every time they made a call, Ronnie was on the call. 
I'm writing stories about Trace. They were talking about Belichick's going crazy. How can his a-hole know all this stuff? Thank you very much. First time in the last time, Ron, you got your draft board yeah. right. Yeah, then it was over. Yeah, then when it was over, I wrote the whole thing. They were livid. There you go. Well, speaking of the draft, a quick shout-out, by the way, to Nashville Mayor David Briley for stopping a plan that would have had the city of Nashville cut down 21 cherry trees to make room for the outdoor stage of the NFL draft. Nice going, David. Uh, we're not cutting any trees here, but we are going to cut to the chase. We're going to commercial. This is the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, as you know, Monday was April Fool's Day, and I suspect some of you were victims of April Fool's pranks, including maybe, well, maybe some of you, uh, by the one that Tom Brady pulled on Twitter. Now, he announced his retirement, saying he would spend his spare time from now on tweeting. You know what? He got 33,000 retweets for that. And Ron, please, yes. please tell me you weren't one of those 33,000. Well, I try to avoid tweeting or making any other bird-related noises. So <laughs> I was not tweet-tweet-tweeting. <laughs> well, I wasn't either, though. If I were still living in New York City, my wife would have had to talk me off the ledge of our apartment. Um, but Gooseman, you know what? Tom Brady wasn't the only one having fun on April Fool's Day. I see the Tampa Bay Bucks announced that wide receiver Mike Evans would be full-time two-way player this season. He's going to play DB. Yeah, he's going to add DB to his workload. He's going to be defensive back. And I saw at least two websites that bought it as news. Uh, but they weren't the only ones. The Chicago Bears, I don't know if you saw this, they took it a step farther. And they did a pretty good job with it on the website. They said uh, they would add a one in front of every number on this year's jerseys to celebrate the franchise's 100th anniversary, which, of course, made sense, except it wasn't true. It was an April Fool's prank. So, Goose, anything you see or hear on this Monday that had you thinking, you know what? you got to be kidding me. Yes, sir, indeed. I bet a lot of folks saw that Monday morning headline in the sports page. Duke ousted from NCAA tournament by Michigan State and thought, how could the greatest basketball team ever assemble with Zion Williamson and two other lottery picks have lost? This surely must be an April Fool's joke, right? No joke, folks. Better team won. Duke, bye-bye. Where's the Michigan State band when we need him, Ron? God, I know. They've left the show, too, anyway. Well, yeah, I'll you tell can, you. You can find him in Minneapolis this weekend. <laughs> I'm going to Tampa, actually. I'm going to be looking for the UConn women's basketball team that made their, what, 14th straight Final Four? Talk about a great team. That's a great team. That's a great, great organization. Anyway, speaking of April Fool's jokes, you know what, Goose? Last one. I thought I read this thing about Julio Jones. He didn't care if he was going to be the highest paid wide receiver. He didn't care. I went, that's another April Fool's joke. Turns out he was serious. That got my attention. Not Michigan State. That got my attention. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm of the belief that you put a ring in your hand and make your demands. It's still a team game and you reward team success. Still waiting for that ring on Julio's hand. <laughs> State your case. Well, you should know that sound by now. That's our way of telling you that Ron is about to bring some law and order to this week's State Your Case. Promoting former 49ers, great for the hall. Congratulations, Ron. I'm glad to hear that because I love the 49ers. And uh, you did a pretty good job on that uh, story this week on our website, the BeTalkOfFameNetwork.com. Go read about it. It's about Cedric Hardman, and it's well done. Ron, you want to tell us about it? Sure. Thanks, Clark. Uh, Cedric Hardman just missed the 
dawning of the 49ers Super Bowl dynasty, but he seldom missed a quarterback. That's why his sack total in San Francisco of 107 remains the club record 40 years since he last dragged down a quarterback at the 49ers' behest. Although sacks did not become an official stat until 1982, the year after Hardman retired, Arden Film Study has established the unofficial totals of a number of the game's top quarterback harassers from football's earlier days, and Cedric Hardman was certainly one of them. In 12 seasons, he piled up 121.5 sacks, which would tie him for 30th all-time alongside Clyde Simmons if the crushing of quarterbacks prior to 1982 was fully acknowledged uh, as it is today. Yet Hardman is one of those players who, while revered in his day by the players who knew him best, has otherwise been forgotten. When Cedric Hardman passed away at 70 on March 8, there was an outpouring of affection and respect for him, however, from both the 49ers and Raider teammates he had his final two seasons in the NFL. All of them understood the impact of his game. As former All-Pro corner Lester Hayes put it, Hardman was, quote, a sack savage. Third down for him was like a designated hitter in baseball. Cedric gave us high heat. Hardman brought that heat to the NFL from North Texas State, where he had a ridiculous 30 sacks his senior season, including 11 against Tulsa on homecoming. Strike up the band! His play so impressed the 49ers, they made him the ninth player selected in the 1970 draft, and he became their instant designated rusher, and by season's end was a starting at defensive end, a position he would hold for a decade. He quickly became a pass-rushing force, unofficially leading the NFL in sacks in 1971 with 18. That year, he also had a hand in five more sacks in the NFC Championship game. In a book about the 49ers published three decades later, Hartman reflected on what it might have been had he had that kind of game today. He said, quote, if someone were to get five sacks in the NFC Championship game today, they'd take his shoes, his helmet, and send him straight to Canton. But we lost the game, so it wasn't a big deal. What was a big deal is when Monty Clark came in and took over the 49ers and replaced Dick Nolan's conservative flex defense in 1976 with an upfield approach called the Jet Scheme. No one was better suited for that than Cedric Hardman. He anchored a front four that became known as the Gold Rush, and in 1976, they recorded 76 sacks. Hardman would lead them with 12 and a half in the midst of a five-year run in which he would pile up 61 sacks, averaging 12 a season. As he once put it, my main reason for living the first 13 years of my adult life was sacking quarterbacks. He was twice named to the Pro Bowl and twice an All-Pro, despite playing on mostly lackluster teams in San Francisco, before finishing his career as the eldest statement of the 1980 Raiders that won the Super Bowl. And guess what? At 32, coming off a nagging ankle problem, he led them with nine and a half sacks, too. So do those 121 and a half sacks make Cedric Harmon Hall of Fame worthy? It would today, considering that he piled them up at a time when teams threw considerably less, and for the first eight of those years he played only a 14-game schedule, it at least seems to make him worthy of a long, long look from the Hall's senior committee. Hey, Ron. Clyde Simmons, Simeon Rice, Leslie O'Neill, Cedric Hardman, and Jim Marshall all are in that 120-plus sacks club. We all know how much this committee loves Ed Rushers. What's happened to those five? They can't get a sniff. I know. Well, I think, unfortunately, uh, they play too soon in many cases. Uh, nearly all of them played on teams that didn't uh, win big. Uh, and so, consequently, they've disappeared. You know, the, if any of those guys were playing today, you'd see their sacks all week long from one week to the next. So it looks like the guy actually has 660 sacks instead of 120. And I think that that really plays against these guys. Uh, a guy like Cedric uh, Hardman, uh, very few uh, of us other than the people on this show remember what he did. We saw what he did. You know the kind of player he was. Uh, but as time passes, those guys get forgotten uh, and their numbers sort of get forgotten. Leslie O'Neill is baffling to me how, how he gets no love at all. 
uh, and and some other guys who I don't think were his equal uh, playing today do. And, and Cedric is another one of those kind of players. That's is O'Neill the best one on that list? O'Neill probably, in my opinion, yeah. Yeah, I saw him play a lot. I mean, he was a dominating player. But I saw Cedric a lot, too. And, boy, that guy. Cedric's big knock was that uh, rushing the quarterback was his thing. Playing the run, not that interested. <laughs> <laughs> I covered Leslie O'Neill. That's baffling to me as well. He's got as many sacks as LT, and nobody talks about him. In fact, they didn't even have him on the preliminary list until I contacted the Hall about four years ago or five years ago, which is just, I mean, astounding. Astonishing. Um, Ron, listening to you talk about him reminds me of the conversation we had, frankly, with Ben Coates in the first hour. I mean, Cedric Hardman didn't get a Super Bowl ring to the end of his career, same thing as Ben Coates, and was yet a very accomplished guy like Ben Coates. Same questions we had for Ben. Uh, do you think the lack of championships here penalized this guy? Because he's certainly Hall of Fame worthy, and yet you really don't hear his name at all. Well, I do, because I'll tell you, in Cedric's case, just think, if he had been uh, come into the league like say three or four years later, and he was playing on those Forty Nine er teams yeah, that, right. that that won those Super Bowls, and he produced one hundred and twenty one sacks. Uh, a, he'd already be in, and Fred Dean never would have come to the Forty ers I mean, you know, that's just because uh, uh, they wouldn't have needed him. You know, and that that's sort of uh, just the luck of the draw. How it is, you know, he uh, same thing with with Ben Coates as you as you mentioned. You know, he was on those Patriot teams. They one of them got to a Super Bowl, but they didn't win it, and a lot of times they were lackluster. And so people forget. It's very easy to forget how good a guy was, uh, especially if you're not seeing his highlight reel endlessly, uh, as you now see. I mean, if you, if, you, if you didn't know better, you'd say J.J. Watt is the greatest defensive lineman to ever play by a factor yeah. of 20. You know, I mean, just that's all you ever see. You know, I've watched him play against the Patriots in the playoffs uh, three or four times, and he never makes a play. Not his fault, but he, <laughs> nothing ever happens. So uh, as good as he is, do, do I think he's being Joe Green? No, I don't. First ballot Hall Ronnie, of Famer. Your bid to, <laughs> Ronnie, your bid to get every Raider in the Hall of Fame is in this part of the fact that you wrote this. Exactly right. One of the great Raiders of our times. <laughs> Cedric was a cool dude, man. I'll tell you that. That's the other thing. Yeah. That. He was a cool dude. He had that Cadillac with the license plate that said nasty, and he, did, I mean, he had all the fl- flashy clothes. You know, I mean, he was a cool dude. Well, thanks again. Always love hearing about the 49ers, especially that 49er. Up next, we'll hear about some Auburn greats. And no, we're not talking about the Auburn basketball team. We're talking about Auburn football, the school's all-NFL team. That's coming up right after this. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, after a long and decorated career, Hunter Shane Leckler retired last weekend. I think you know that. And uh, you probably know that he was immediately christened the best punter to ever walk the earth by former teammate J.J. Watt. And former punter Pat McAfee called him the first ballot Hall of Famer. Um, I've written about this. I wrote about it last week week on our website. Um, so I'm going to ask you, you, you guys want to weigh on this? As I said, I've already spoken, so I'd like to hear what you guys have to say, Ron. Well, first off, the, no punter in history will ever be a first ballot Hall of Famer. Uh, second, clearly J.J. Watt was neither walking the earth nor studying football history if he believes that anyone but Ray God <laughs> is the best punter to ever walk on the face of the earth. Ray invented hang time. Shane just took advantage of its existence. Leckler is the all-time leader in em- Leckler's the all-time leader in average yards per punt, but any special teams coach will tell you 
that's the stat that matters least for a punter. It's all about net punting. How many yards are they returning your kicks? Outkick your coverage, and you're setting yourself up for a potentially lethal running back. What you want is a 44-yard punt and a 44-yard net. What you don't want is a 54-yard punt and a 20-yard return. That's a 34-yard net, and that's not good. Yeah, Goose, I'm glad you brought that up because it was net average to me where he did fall short. Um, in fact, when I was doing the story, uh, I contacted uh, NFL historian John Turney, Pro Football Journal, who's been on the show many, many times, and he compiled a list of a zillion stats. And Leckler was something like 20th in net average versus his contemporaries. Not all time, his contemporaries. In the top 40 individual net seasons of all time, Leckler has one entry. Thomas Morstead of the Saints is on that list six times, and Johnny Hecker of the Rams four times, and both are contemporaries of Leckler. Yeah, and, and I want to make sure, as I pointed out in that piece, wrote, I, I, listen, I'm not knocking Leckler, nor are we. I mean, the guy was a terrific punter, and, and he was one of the best of his era, but in the wake of what we just heard, I, I really do think it's advisable to pump the brakes on some of that Shane Leckler to Canton talk. Um, a, Ron, because you know that room, the Dawes one punter, period, Ray Guy, and only three specialists total. And B, because it took that one punter, Ray Guy, 23 years to get in. And then, Ron, only when you presented him as a senior candidate after he'd been turned down, I think, seven times. And then C, because I'll be honest, I mean, like Goose pointed out, I'm not sure I put in Shane Leckler in over Johnny Hecker. And I might not go for either. Yeah, well, I can I, I can tell you this. Bill Belichick uh, has repeatedly called um, Heckler quote a weapon. I mean, he says, he says, he said it every time that the Patriots played them. Uh, his team has played Leckler's team a number of times as well. He has never mentioned his name, let alone call him a weapon. Uh, now that doesn't mean he wasn't a fine punter and all that, uh, because he was. Uh, but Ray Guy was a weapon. Heckler's right. a weapon. Uh, Bill Belichick thinks the uh, Leckler weapon not so much. Yeah, Ray Guy was field position. That's what, to me, right. you know, Hecker was the home run hitter. He could hit the ball a mile. But then, as Goose pointed out, you also got returns. You know, you got um, lots of returns for a lot of yardage. And also, in uh, John Turney's stats, he had him as, I think, next to highest among five punters he mentioned. Uh, Hecker was one of them. Next to highest in terms of um, uh, percentage of punts that land in the end zone. That's not good. Touchback. No. That's not well, good. I'll, I'll, anyway. I'll tell you, Ray Guy punted once in a game uh, against Pittsburgh seven times. Five times was front in the Pittsburgh uh, side of the field, including once from the 37-yard line where he dropped it on the four-yard line. So what's his net? 33. What was the yeah, return? Right. Zero. Exactly, yeah. And then also in Super Bowl 18 against the Redskins, seven punts, five inside the 20. Anyway, all that said, we do, believe it or not, we do want to congratulate Shane Leckler on a terrific 18-year career with the Raiders and the Texans. Uh, I think he will be in a Hall of Fame conversation. I just don't know how far he goes. Uh, okay. Speaking of Hall of Fame conversations, there are Hall of Famers, I think two of them, on Rick Gosselin's all-NFL list for Auburn University. We ran it this week on our website. That'd be talkoffamenetwork.com. And Goose, I'll admit it. Ronald admit it, too. I was disappointed. I thought you could sneak Charles Barkley in there somewhere. Maybe as a maybe an offensive lineman, defensive tackle. I don't know. You know, I probably could have plugged him in at tight end because the bucket was fairly empty at that position. But with his body type, he might have fit in better at guard. And I had two pretty good ones there in Ben Grubbs and Kendall Simmons. 
It'd also be a great post-game quote, wouldn't it? would be terrific. <laughs> um, okay, two things about this team that stand out to me. Um, one is, and Ron, I, you'll chime in on this one, the absence of Bo Jackson, uh, whose career, I know Goose was abbreviated or short, uh, but geez, he made one heck of an impression that time. In fact, Ron made a Hall of Fame presentation on Stage Your Case for him. And two, the mention of Lionel Little Train James on special teams. Goose, I covered him in San Diego. I love the guy. So Don Coryell, he was one of the most talented and really gracious backs I've ever been around. It's really nice to see him remembered. Yeah, if, if I had picked a what-could-have-been team, Bo would have been on it, and I'd have had Ernie Davis on the Syracuse team as well. Yeah, right. This is about what you accomplished in the NFL. The two, back, two backs I picked were solid. You know, Stephen Davis won an NFC rushing title, went to three Pro Bowls, and scored more NFL touchdowns than any Auburn back. James Brooks, four Pro Bowls, was next to 49 touchdowns. And Bo wasn't the only good one I left off. William Andrews and Joe Cribbs also were notable absentees from, from that backfield. I did fit the little train in as my kick return specialist because I love the guy like you. I was in Kansas City watching him return those kicks. And try as I might, I couldn't figure out how to get one of my all-time favorites, Tucker Fredericks. Oh, yeah, I loved him. You know what I remember about train, though? <laughs> Don Corey always talking to me. go, I love that little water bug. <laughs> 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 oh boy! Uh, well, uh, I know it's uh, one guy uh, down on your team uh, is D Ford. The, the Chiefs just tagged him, the great pass rusher. Just tagged him. Uh, he's going to earn over fifteen million dollars this season. How close did he come to at least buying his way onto this team? He's on the team. On the team. Yes. He's also. Yes. He also. Yes. He's also the. He's also the second best pass rusher on that team, behind our good friend Kevin, Kevin Green. Green. Yeah. And, I thought I looked assiduously at that team, and I did not find. How did I do that? I'm losing. You might, want, on, you might want to look up assiduously. First. Holy Jesus! I've been on ice too long, man. I, my brain is on ice. I am on ice. I wouldn't take that, that phantom team. I would yeah. get to the. Oh my God! <laughs> Somebody took my ass into the boards. Wow! <laughs> Holy cow! Concussion. Go to our website, talkoffamenetwork.com. What about like Whitey Ford? That. He wasn't on the team. I know that. <laughs> Jeepers, crawl. Yeah. Goose, I'm going to mention some guys who were on that team. Honestly, God, I studied that thing. I can't believe that. Kevin Green. It was a, wow. Well, you studied it. You just flunked the test wrong. Yeah, I did. Well, that ain't the first time. <laughs> um, you mentioned those Auburn running backs. Yeah, there were a slew of good ones. And you mentioned Tucker Fredrickson, 65. You go back to Joe Childress. I remember watching him with the Cardinals. He was at Auburn, 56. Joe Cribbs, James Brooks, Poe Jackson. You go down the list. You could be a lot of teams for the running backs you left off this club. You just give them the ball and control the clock. There's more. Rudy Johnson had 3,000-yard seasons in the NFL. He didn't get a sniff on this team. Ronnie Brown was the second overall pick of the 2005 draft. He had a 1,000-yard season. Brent Fullwood, he had a 1,000-yard season. He was a fourth overall pick of the 87 draft. If you need a running back, Auburn is a must-stop every fall for NFL scouts. Well, guys, I know you had Red Phillips on this team. I know that. <laughs> you are correct. I know yeah. that. I actually know who Red Phillips was, too, as well. He led the NFL in receiving in 1961 with the L.A. Rams. Uh, but a lot of our listeners have probably never heard of him. So, Goose, you want to tell us uh, and, and our listeners who he was and what made him great? Yeah, he was a three-time Pro Bowl in the early 60s. He put up elite numbers back when the NFL was a running league, and he was excelling during an era when the Rams didn't have great quarterback. And this was after Van Brocklin. 
and before Roman Gabriel. But because the Rams never won big, and, and who was going to win big in the Western Conference back then, competing annually against the Packers, his greatness has been lost in the pages of time. Well, Goose, another guy on this team um, that got my attention was the Cowboys' Tommy Agee, special teams. And I'm going to ask you a question I don't know the answer to, honestly. I guess I could look up Wikipedia, but um, is he related to Tommy Agee, the center fielder who started for the White Sox and the Mets? Uh, they're both Alabama. But yeah. you have to do a DNA test to find out. I, I couldn't find <laughs> it anywhere. Yeah, because that, that's not a common name. And yet when I saw Tommy Agee, I went, wait a minute. This got to be the son of the center fielder. It was a great center fielder. But um, I didn't see anything about it. I looked at his bio, I didn't see anything. Yeah, I, I, and I looked at the t- bios from the Cowboys Press Guide, nothing. You know, A.G. was uh, the lead blocker for Emmett Smith's first 1,000-yard season and also the lead blocker for Bo Jackson at Auburn. Wow. Easy job. Yeah, get out of it. Yeah. Make sure he doesn't trample you from behind. Uh, Apparently, Ron, easier than reading that story for you. <laughs> I love D Ford, uh, <laughs> and sort of the Patriots. Uh, yeah, sort of the Patriots. <laughs> uh, so, uh, <laughs> you know, we know the running back was your toughest position to judge uh, Goose on this team. I guess uh, is that your easiest was probably quarterback. I mean, you have Cam Newton, yeah. uh, and then who do you have? Well. Jason Campbell would have been the other option. He was a wow, first-round yeah. pick the Redskins, wound up playing 10 NFL seasons, started 79 games. He had eight 300-yard games, so he had his moments. There's one other Auburn quarterback you may have heard of, though. The guy Joe Namath replaced as starting quarterback of the Jets, Dick Wood. Oh, yes, absolutely. One of Auburn's finest. Dick Wood, yeah. wow. The name for the best. Remember Dick Wood and then Mike Tolliver, too, with the Jets? Yeah, Wow. Wow. Was, was this a tougher team for you to pick than, than any of the others? Because, I mean, I looked at last week's Syracuse team. You had six Hall of Famers. Here you had two, but you had accomplished guys on both sides of the ball. Yeah, I wasn't as deep on the defensive side. A lot of these colleges weren't as deep on the defensive side as the offensive side. And the other thing, I've started a number of different schools, but if there's no quarterback, there's no team. Yeah. So right. I've, I've had a couple of them just, just you know, crashed on the rocks because there's no quarterback. You know, you got to right. find an elite quarterback, and that's basically where you start. Thanks, Goose Man. Uh, who do you got up next week? Speaking of quarterbacks, the Cal Bears. Ooh. Oh, Ron, just a guess. I think quarterback's going to be an easy choice there too. Yeah, Joe although Brown. you at least you, you have more than one option. I mean, you've got you've got <laughs> Rogers, but you've also got Barkowski too. <laughs> yeah, it's a, yeah. That's going to be interesting. We're going to have some some. I will study that team. I will memorize every one of those. <laughs> I can't a little better than the Auburn team. Oh, my God. Don't ask. Hey, Goose, how come Aaron Rodgers didn't make this team? All right. <laughs> anyway, we'll look forward to it, Goose. Thanks. I'm going to take a break here. When we return, it's Fox Rules expert Dean Blandino. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, you might know Dean Blandino as the former head of NFL officiating, or you might know him as the rules analyst, a rules analyst for Fox Sports, or as director of instant replay for NCAA football. Or, you know what, you might know him as all three. We do, and we're glad to have him with us today. And Dean, first of all, thanks for being here. I really appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. Happy to uh, happy to spend some time with you guys. Well, we 
we touched on this in our first hour, and I think you probably know what's coming up here, and I want to get to it right away. And yeah. that's the rule change that allows coaches to challenge pass interference calls uh, that occurred at last week's NFL owners' meetings. And it's calls like the one that happened in the Rams-Saints playoff game. Uh, I know it's hailed as a huge step forward, and I get it if you're a Saints fan. But I guess my question is sort of multifold here. Uh, how are you going to regulate it? Because when you slow down video frame by frame, something that didn't seem all that apparent, kind of like that Brandon Cook's incompletion at the goal line the Super Bowl, may in fact look like it was pass interference. And I know we had Mike Pereira on here last year talking about it. He said, you can't slow it down frame by frame. It's got to be something clear and obvious. Is, is that going to be a, a problem here, I think, going forward? I think that's going to be one of the challenges. And look, we're here because of that play in the NFC Championship game. If that play happens in the first quarter, or even if the Saints win the game, I, I don't think this rule passes. And that's the big challenge is you have rules that are written for on-field officials to make decisions in real time. And now we're going to slow it down and we're going to go frame by frame and we're going to see contact that was not evident to the to the naked eye. And, and do we want 40, 50-yard pass interference penalties created because of that? Do we want a play that in the Super Bowl that really, after some initial conversation between between Romo and Nance, it went away and nobody talked about it. Now, imagine this rule in place and that call is made in replay. Right. We'd still be talking about it. It's just, it's, it's, there are going to be some, some challenges here. Yeah, you know what I found uh, interesting was I think the coaches said to a man that that, that, uh, that uh, Brandon Cook's incompletion was pass interference. And I looked at it and went, boy, you've really got to look hard for that. And and I didn't see it in the game. And you're right, aside from what, you know, I guess Tony mentioned it on the air, I didn't see it. But if you slow it down, you know, frame by frame, that's what you get. And I think that's a real danger, to be honest. Yeah, there's no question. And then that's why the competition committee has been opposed to, to making these fouls reviewable because, again, there's a standard on the field and then there's a standard in replay and they're different. And, and so I think this is, I know, look, the coaches, I get it. Look, they, they want this. They want the ability to challenge these calls. Nobody wants to see what happened in the, in the Saints Rams game happen again. Uh, but that's, that's not a call that's missed that, that, badly by NFL officials on a regular basis. That's, that's a once-in-a-long-time uh, miss. And, uh, and again, now it's, let's figure out how we're going to administer this rule and make sure we don't negatively impact the game. Okay, let's go to maybe an even harder call, and that's the Hail Marys. I mean, how are you going to administer the rule yeah. there? Because there's a ton of pushing and shoving going on. seems to me there's also a danger, again, of over-officiating by replay. There's no question. I think the Hail Mary has to be treated differently. The, the, it's treated differently on the field, and you're going to allow a, a, an amount of contact on a Hail Mary that you won't allow in other situations. I think that's how they have to treat it in replay, because um, if that if they're going to go by the letter of the law on Hail Marys, you, you, you're going to have pass interference on every one of them. And I think that's where common sense has to has to come into play. You can't you can't have a, a foul for pass interference on a Hail Mary in replay that, that isn't something so obvious, so blatant, so, so flagrant um, that, uh, that it wasn't called on the field. Dean, if, if we're going to allow challenges on PIs not called, how soon before we see replay challenges on missed offensive holding calls? Yeah, that's that's the next question. This is this is the the first kind of let's let's dip our toe in the water. But but I've experienced this. We brought replay back in 1999, and there was a small 
set of, of plays that were reviewable and it and it mushroomed into this into this big thing and that's what I anticipate is going to happen because you're going to have a play next year where there's going to be a big face mask missed or a big hit on a, on a receiver and the, and the question is going to come up well you can review pass interference why can't you review that that impacted the game and now we're going to add that to the list of reviewable plays and it's just now we're down that slippery slope in essence, the league has made Al Riveron, who heads the official department, the second most powerful executive in the NFL after Goodell. Is that correct? There's no question during the season that that position is the second most important position um, in the league office. There's no question. You, there's nobody. There's nobody that that has a has an impact on games um, like that role and and that's why that position um, is so critical to the league and and it's a hard job and and you need to give that person a lot of support and a lot of resources and help them um, be successful do you work also okay. where do you stand on the sky judge you know the, I think I think the sky judge it's an interesting concept I Look, I I come from a background, you know, and I remember sitting in, in 345 Park and watching games and seeing missed calls and knowing they were wrong and, and having no vehicle to fix them. So I get that. The thing is, again, it's it's how much... How much can we can we officiate from from video? How much do we want to inject ourselves into the game? Um, and for every call that's missed, that's obvious. There are so many that are not as obvious. And uh, and again, you know, I the concept is interesting, but uh, you know, I don't know. I think it's I think it will eventually happen when technology just gets to the point where it becomes seamless uh, to inject yourself into the game. But uh, you know, I just I just don't know how much how much can we officiate the game from from video. And, and is that truly good for the game? Well, that leads me to a, 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 a sort of side question on this, Dean. Uh, you always have the fear of unintended consequences when you make a move like this. Uh, and, and the one that I think of right off the bat is uh, the call is made on the field. Uh, it's close call. It gets reversed on a, pa- a pass. In front. It gets uh, reversed or they get flagged, whatever affects the outcome of the game. Uh, and the betting swing is gigantic, and people are screaming that the game was fixed. No question. This, the gambling part of this, and this is where this takes us into a realm where where we've never been before. And, and if you know, gambling becomes legalized across the, the, the United States, and if leagues want integrity fees, then then okay, what controls are you putting in place to ensure that your games are are decided fairly? And and this is all part of that discussion. So you know how how many things can you put in place that Officials are, are human. They're going to make mistakes. Mistakes are going to impact games. There's no way we're going to be perfect. And uh, and again, with the whole gambling thing now, it's just where does it stop? And that's and that's the you know that remains to be seen. Sure, because I mean that to me that that guy really becomes the most powerful guy in the game. The guy who can suddenly you know change the outcome of a game. You know, by uh, whether you want to call it eye in the sky or, or sitting up there and saying, oh, no, that, was, that wasn't past interference, or, or it was. Uh, and, and, and you know as well as I do. They can call pass interference on Rob Gronkowski every time he runs down a field, frankly. Uh, see if they want to go the other way. 
No question. There's so much contact. I mean, and we, we, we're focusing on defensive pass interference, like you said, offensive pass interference. That's a whole nother deal. And there's so much contact between receivers and defensive backs. And now we're going to, we're going to sit there. And, and a lot of times the official on the field has a great look. Both players are, are, are making contact. There's no advantage and they let them play and there's no harm, no foul. And now we're going to get involved in replay and say, Oh, well, you know what? He, he did get his arm on the receiver's arm just before the ball got there, or that receiver just extended his arm into the defender to create some space. Are we gonna? Are we taking it to that degree? And, and is that good for the game? We're speaking with Dean Blandino on the Talk of Fame Network, and Dean, we had Ed Hockley on here not too long ago. Yeah. Asked him about full-time officials, and he went nuts. <laughs> he said, "What do you mean they're already full-time because of all the hours they put in? What are you talking about?" But most of these guys, as we know, have other jobs. I, I guess I'll ask you the question I asked him: are, are you supportive of full-time officials, and do you think at some point that happens? You know, I, I think it's going to happen. I, I think you know, just for the reasons we've been talking about, I think it's going to happen. I think you know, I having been a part of it and understanding what Ed's talking about, the, the officials spend more time. NFL officials spend more time on on football than most people realize, and, and they. I always, as as head of officiating, I always felt bad for their other employer because they were spending so much time on football, which took them away from their other profession. But again, they're not. They're not full time in the sense that Monday through Friday they're they're in a facility and they're looking at film or they're working practice. It's just football is not set up that way. It's traditionally, historically, you're playing once a week. But baseball umpires and NBA referees, they when they're not working games, it's not like they're at the they're at the Celtics facility working practice. You know, they're they're or in the off season, you know, they're off. And, and it's just they have more games to work. So I don't know. I think anytime you can give officials more hours, more reps, more more looks at video, I think that's good. I just don't ever envision, you know, they're never going to be full-time in that, in, in you know, a, a 9 to 5, Monday through Friday, that type of thing. But I think there are opportunities for NFL officials to, to do things in-season, off-season that can help them get better. Dean, Sean Hockley's crew last year called 253 penalties for almost 2,200 yards. Bill yep. Vinovich's crew called 169 penalties for 1,400 yards. Are you concerned about the lack of consistency from one crew to the next? No question. That, that's something when I was there we would track. And look, not every... Not every game is created equally. Not every crew is, is the same. Um, so sometimes it's just a result of, of the games that they work. And we would study that and look, okay, why is one crew calling, calling 150 more fouls than the other over the course of 15 games? That, that's significant. And so you look at individual officials. You look at their, their performances. Um, you look at the games that they've worked. But, again, it's that consistency um, that is coaches can do deal with mistakes, they can deal with missed calls, but, but when it's inconsistent, that, that's always the, the, the troubling thing. And, and again, a, a disparity that, that is that wide is not great. I think that's something you try to bring them closer to, to center and try to get them, you know, if they're, at, if they're averaging 15 and a half, 16 fouls a game over the course of the season, you'd like to see your crews as close to that as possible and not have one calling 25 and another calling 8. How do you close the gap? You know, I think it's through teaching. I think it's through it's 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 good direction, 
consistent direction. It all starts, right? It all starts with this process. The competition committee, rules changes, points of emphasis, and then it's incumbent upon the officiating department and the officiating staff to then give clear direction to the officials. And then throughout the season, if you if you see a crew that is calling more fouls and those fouls are incorrect, then you have to correct that in season. You can't wait until the season's over. So you track that. You track that game by game and then you can work with that crew um, to, to show them examples. Okay, here, here's five fouls from this game that are incorrect. Here's why. And you hope that they can take that into their next game so when that same set of circumstances presents itself, they don't call that, that penalty. So, again, it's just your teaching direction and, uh, and you just have to continue to do it over and over. Dean, quick question. We've got 10 seconds left. Uh, all-star officiating crews, like them or not, and are they kaput? You know, I, I think there's going to be, even in my time, it's a combination. I, I, I like the continuity of the crew when, when officials have worked all year, but I also like having your best people. And I think there's, I think there's a balance there. I think you can keep the integrity of the crew, but, but kind of eliminate any weak links and get better officials in there. And I think that's hopefully where the NFL goes. Dean, thanks so much for the time. Really, really appreciate it. Thank you. You got it. You got it. That's with Fox Rules analyst Dean Blandino. Up next, it's Two Minute Drill. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. We're just about out of time, so let's see if Dean Blandino will blow that whistle. That's the Two Minute Warning. Thanks, Dean. That means it's a two-minute drill again with Goose calling the shots. Gooseman, let's get going. Defensive end Randy Gregory has been suspended definitely by the NFL, his fourth suspension for substance abuse. So why do the Cowboys just give him a contract extension? Because they're the same team, Goose, that signed Greg Hardy. <laughs> Ouch. That is so unfair, Clark, man. It is because Jerry Jones, like Father Flanagan, believes there are no bad boys, there is only bad environment, bad training, and bad example. Mike Evans says the Buccaneers have one of the best sets of receivers in the NFL. Which team has the best set? That would be your Dallas Cowboys. Giant screen at Jerry World is the best set anywhere. <laughs> that would be Kansas City. And that would be Tyreek Hill and anybody who's on the other side of Tyreek Hill. <laughs> Speaking of the Bucks, where does their exiled Pro Bowl defensive tackle Gerald McCoy wind up playing this season? That'd be on the set of the new reality TV show, the 21st Century Real McCoys. <laughs> I would say the uh, the Patriots until he acts to get paid, and then he goes to the Eagles. Are we tired of mock drafts yet? Well, if we were, Goose, we wouldn't be talking about them. <laughs> I am not tired of them, Goose, because other than your mock draft, I never used to look at them. The Giants, Lions, Raiders, Redskins, and 49ers are all eligible for hard knocks this summer. Which team would you prefer to see? Raiders. But only if we can see football's fabulous females. <laughs> of course, the Raiders. John Gruden and A.B. made for TV drama. <laughs> Julian Edelman, Julian Lennon, or Julian Assange? Julian Lennon, the inspiration for Hey Jude. I would say Julian Edelman because this show needs a receiver, not a singer or a slinger. <laughs> Duke Johnson wants out of Cleveland. Where's the best fit for the best pass-catching back in football? That'd be the Tennessee Titans, formerly the Tennessee Oilers, because then he could be the Duke of Oils. <laughs> Good. <laughs> New England with Tom Brady throwing to him. Unless he wants to get paid. Joey Bosa will make an appearance in the Game of Thrones. Which show should his Chargers teammate Philip Rivers make an appearance? That would be eight is not enough. 
<laughs> that would be designated survivor. That's the end of the game. If you'd like to hear this or any podcast, go to our website, www.talkoffamenetwork.com, or find us on iTunes or your podcast app. Otherwise, tune in next week at this time and on this station. Thanks for listening.